Thank you for listening to the Competition Committee Podcast. Check out new podcasts every Thursday. If you know, you know. Welcome, everybody, to the Competition Committee, a sports podcast where we find ways to make our favorite sports more fun for the fans. I'm your host, Parker, and in today's episode, we'll talk about the infamous dropped third strike rule, play a round of highly leveraged true or false, talk about how to make the last NFL game of the season more interesting, and of course, we'll see what our listeners have sent us through our emails. We are once again joined by our returning committee pundit, David. How are you today, sir? And what do you think think about today's topics? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on having me on again. I'm very excited about the topics. I've given them a little bit of thought, and uh, hopefully, we can have a good uh, discussion about them. All right, we will jump right in. Let's talk about the dropped third strike rule. JJ, why do we need to talk about this? Well, there was an interesting high school baseball. Ch- game in New York State. It was Harnell against uh, Palmera for the Section 5 Class B1 State Championship. So it was an important game, or at least very important for these teams. And what happened, it was the bottom of the seventh. They only play seven innings. It was the bottom of the seventh, and there were two outs, and Hornell was in the field, and they were leading five to four, and there were two base runners on base. What happened was the pitcher threw a pitch that hit the dirt and the catcher did not catch it and had to pick it up with his hand. The base runner promptly saw that the ball had been dropped and ran to first. The catcher turns around, he looks at the umpire and Miss, I guess he misunderstands what the umpire is signaling, and he puts the ball in his pocket, and everybody on the Hornell team goes to the mound celebrating their state championship, except for their second baseman, who is going wild because he's seeing these runners round the bases for home plate. He runs to home but can't find the ball doesn't know where it is because it's in the catcher's back pocket who is on the on the mound. So we have a state championship that was won because of this third strike dropped ball rule. So it's probably worth talking about. Well, JJ, um, I think you got one key aspect of that a little bit wrong. I don't, I'm not sure it exactly hit the dirt, but it hit the catcher's mitt, and it, but, but the umpire actually called it a third strike which is where it comes into play from there. Well, let me let me just talk about the rule itself because it can be rather nuanced and hopefully we can come to a conclusion on whether JJ is right or not. So the rule itself, which was implemented in 1845, let me say that again, 1845, is that when a hitter strikes out, whether it's swinging or not, so it can be called, a called third strike, and the catcher fails to catch the pitch in the air, the hitter then turns into a runner. So this only happens when there are two outs or if there are less than two outs and first base is unoccupied by a base runner. 
So it doesn't matter if it's swinging or if it's a call third strike. As long as the catcher drops it, he becomes a runner. I guess the reason that that rule has those nuances to it, the nuance being that it only applies if there is not a runner on first base and it only applies if there's already two outs, is because once this initial rule was established, catchers were dropping the ball on purpose so that they could get a double play. So you could mm-hmm. you could drop the ball, throw it to first, and get that runner out, or tag him and get that runner out, and then throw it to second and get a runner out. So that's where the nuances came from. I feel like they need to simplify this rule somehow and just either do it away all completely or have it to where if you do eliminate trying to get that double play act, just have it at, at two outs. If it's, if it's a called third strike or a swinging third strike and he drops it, just have it be for two outs and then he can turn into a runner. All this other stuff where it has to be, you know, if it's less than two outs and first pay, first base is not occupied, then runners can advance. I feel like this all this other stuff can just be thrown out the window. It should just be either throughout the rule altogether or just two outs, nobody on, then the hitter turns into a runner. And I think this rule is just so outdated that they just need to simplify it. It's just in this poor high school team's case, it just ruined their whole season. And side note, if we're going to link a video to this um, championship game in the description below, it is atrocious that both teams are wearing red in this situation. You cannot tell who is who (laughs) whatsoever. You don't know if the base runners are actually trying to run for the base or if they're infielders and scrambling trying to find the ball. You have no idea what's going on. It's absolute chaos. That's just a side note. Yeah, it's it's worth watching just to see how excited the second baseman gets. He is going crazy trying to to get this player out, but can't get his hands on the ball. I, I think one thing that's worth noting from what I read, the reason this rule exists is they wanted the ball to end up in the glove of a fielder to result in an out. They didn't want they thought that that was necessary because in all other cases the play ends with the ball in the fielder's glove it's just it's just strange because it's it's considered an it's considered a strikeout even if he ends up on first base it's a strikeout and you know especially for Justin Verlander who got his 3000 strikeout which is a very exclusive club he got his 3000 strikeout on a dropped third strike and the batter ended up on first base, it was still considered a strikeout. So people are cheering for him. It was a big deal, but you kind of feel, you know, cheated a little bit because that guy ended up on first base. So I don't know. It's just kind of frustrating. Doesn't have an odd impact on a perfect game as well. It it can spoil a perfect game, right? I'm assuming it's considered an error. That's a good question. Actually, it would, it would definitely still fall under the no hitter aspect, but perfect game. I'm not sure about that. Well, we'll have to look it up and tell, tell our listeners next time. I'm going to push back a little bit on that. I do agree with, you know, the circumstance of, 
you know, it, it can be an any out as long as no one's on first. That is a little nuanced, but I kind of like it. If you, you, you just got to know the rules of the game, regardless of they're 180 years old or not. Does it have application to, to today's game? Because they were rules that were made in 1845 back then that existed with this rule, such as you can catch a ball in the outfield on one hop. Like that was a rule back in 1845. You could still catch a ball. It would still be out if the ball bounced in the outfield once and then you caught it. That's not a, still a rule. They're doing away with old rules. Does this rule still have application to today's game? It had relevance in this high school game and it made the high school game exciting. I'm with David. I'm not opposed to having a few complicated rules and the smarter team wins. I bet this is not on Theo Epstein's high list of things to change for baseball. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it does produce some interesting discussion, interesting plays. I think one of the things that's more interesting is it almost looks like the catcher tags the runner as he takes off, and he kind of looks back at the umpire like, hey, I tagged him, and the umpire's like, I don't know. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but he didn't actually call it. And then he puts the ball in his back pocket. So it was almost like the catcher kind of knew the rule, but didn't really follow through with it. I think the criticism of the umpire, and again, this was a criticism that I read when completely understood, is he did call the runner safe. He indicated that he hadn't made the tag, but he, he made the motion in a small manner and not a large manner. And in fact, umpires are encouraged to vocalize their calls as well, and he didn't do that. It was such an emotional part of the game. I mean, you're about to win your championship. It was a strike three call. You look back at the umpire, and he does a little motion, but the crowd's cheering. Your family's cheering. You just won. The only thing you want to do is put the ball away and go celebrate. You don't want to throw the ball the first. The game is over in his mind. I, I, I mean, I get it. There was a fan in the stands who was very close to where the camera was because you can just hear him hollering just over and over again, trying to get the, Oh my gosh. The, a Hornell team to respond. Anyway, I guess we've talked enough about this. Well, should this be a yes or no? Should this rule be still in the MLB or in baseball in general, or do we want to do a rating system on this? How we, how do we want to proceed? Sure. Let's vote on it. Okay. I will start because I think this rule is ridiculous and it no longer applies to the game of baseball, in my opinion. So I vote no. It should be outlawed. Uh, I'm going to go the opposite. I like the rule. I'm going to go with David. We wouldn't have anything to talk about today if the rule didn't exist. (laughs) All righty. Rule stays. We will take a brief break. And when we come back, we'll play Highly Leveraged. True or false? Parker, it's freezing in here. Did you pay the gas bill? I sure did. I got the check right here. $230 payable to pass more gas and propane. Pass more gas and propane. Randall Passmore, founder and operator, says, We are no tootin' joke. And we are back. 
Parker's handed me the microphone so that I can lead a game of highly leveraged true or false. We've played this a few times. David, I think this is your first time playing. That is correct. You're going to have some true or false questions, and you're going to get to leverage those based on how confident you are in your answers. Since you are the guest, you get to go first. Pick a number one to eight. Seven. Okay. You pick the number seven. This is a golf question. It's going to be tough on you if you miss it. Mm. Golf originated in Scotland in the 18th century. True or false? And real quick, what are the leverage points one more time? Leverage one, two, three, or four. If you're very confident, you pick a high number. If you're not very confident, you pick a low number. You can only use the number once. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say four. I'm going to say false. You are correct. Wow. It was before the 18th century. And it wasn't Scotland. The origins can be traced back to the Netherlands in the 15th century. Interesting. Hmm. So, doing pretty well. You already have four points, so it's four to zero. Parker, pick a number. Give me eight. Number eight. Okay. Justin Jefferson, wide receiver from the Minnesota Vikings, confirmed his family's long-held belief that they descended from Thomas Jefferson through extensive DNA testing in 2021. Oh, my gosh. Why do I feel like I heard something similar to this? Was it Justin Jefferson, though? I'm going to go ahead and leverage this a one, and I'm going to say true. Well, it's a good thing you only used one because it's false. Darn it. I just made it up. <laughs> it felt pretty good. I feel like somebody, I'm going to look this up. Somebody has come out and said and that. And I, I had a hard time saying it without laughing. <laughs> okay, David. That's it's, terrible. It's four to zero. Pick a number, one to six. I'm going to say one. Number one. Hall of Fame NFL quarterback Steve Young attended Brigham Young University. This college is named after Brigham Young of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, who also happens to be his great-great-great-grandfather. True or false? Wow. I'm going to say, I'm going to give it two points, and I'm going to say false. It is true. Really? Oh, wow. How about that? Didn't he get kicked at... Didn't he get kicked out of BYU? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe when he got drafted, he got kicked out. <laughs> anyway, that was his great, great, great grandfather. Did not know that. Wow. Well, there you go. There you go. Okay, Parker, you can pick two, three, four, five, or six. Give me six. Number six. The Tour de France is a three-week long race that takes place exclusively in France. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I mean, is it really this easy? Is this a trick question that the Tour de France can also be in parts of Spain? Could it be? Goodness gracious. I have no idea here. It's too easy to be true. I'm going to leverage this at two and say it's false. You are correct. Yes. It is three weeks long, but it often begins in other countries. Last year it began in Denmark, but it's often in Belgium, Spain, or Italy. So okay. it is now Take it. four to two. David, you can pick two, three, four, or five. I'll go three. 
Number three, David, Babe Ruth offered $400, which is about $9,000 in today's money, to a patron who caught the 700th home run baseball, but the patron refused. He stated later that he really disliked both Babe Ruth and the Yankees. This baseball has been lost to history. True or false? I'm going to leverage this a one and say true. Well, it's a good thing you got your four points early because you're wrong here. <laughs> I'm making a comeback. He he offered he offered $20 and the patron gave it to him. Oh, nice. Good deal. Okay, we have available two, four, or five. Give me two. Number two, Parker. In 1935, Jesse Owens broke three world records and tied another in 45 minutes. Owens broke the world records for the 220-yard dash, the 220-yard low hurdles, the running broad jump, and equaled the world record for the 100-yard dash. True or false? Did it all in 45 minutes. <laughs> Let me bust out my track and field knowledge and expertise here. I'm going to give this a leverage number of three and say Jesse Owens did not do that. False. You would be wrong. 45 minutes, really? All four of those? Never heard of this guy. You don't know who Jesse Owens is? What? No. What are they teaching school these days? He was he was the black man who stood up to Hitler. Hitler was in the Hitler was in the audience for this day when it occurred. Hitler, yeah, in Berlin. Well, anyway, you missed it. We now stand four to two. David, you're winning, and you can pick between number four and number five. Well, I'm going to round out all the prime numbers and go five. Okay. Well, Wimbledon originated in 1877, it is not the oldest tennis tournament in the world. The U.S. Open was first held two years after the end of the Civil War in 1865. True or false? And you have a three is the only number you have left. Well, I'll leverage this a three. And I will say false. And you will be correct. The Wimbledon did originate in 1877. But the U.S. Open was first held in 1881. <clears throat> okay, you have an opportunity here, Parker, to lose by less. <laughs> less than one, or lose by one. Well, no, right now it is seven to two, and all you have left mm -hmm. is a four. Okay, yes, you can lose by mm -hmm. one. And Parker, you should get this. The longest tennis match took place in 2010 at Wimbledon, where John Isner of the United States defeated Nicolas Mahat of France in a match that lasted 11 hours and five minutes and spanned over three days. True or false? Well, his name was Nicolas Mahout, and that is true. Leverage that of four. And you are correct. So the final score... Yes. Ends up David winning seven to six in a close fought game. Congratulations, sir. Thank you. I'm ashamed I didn't know Jesse Owens. I'm so sorry. 
Well, we will take a break, and when we come back, we will look at the last game of the NFL season. We'll be right back. Parker, where did you get your copy of The Sports Gene by David Epstein? I picked it up at Borders Bookstore, of course. Borders Bookstore. Get lost in a book and ignore the behemoth Amazon that will put you out of business. All right, we are back. We're going to throw some NFL discussion in here to wrap up this episode. We're going to talk about how to make the last NFL game of the season a little bit more interesting. JJ, you want to lead us off? I will. And I'll tell you where this idea came from. Parker, you and I both went to see a football game this year. We saw we went to Atlanta and we saw uh, Tampa Bay, which happens to be your team, play the Falcons. And in that game, the first half was quite interesting. Brady played. It was competitive. But in the second half, Tampa Bay simply gave up. And they gave up because they didn't care. The win made no difference to them. The other thing that I guess is worth noting is that we paid way too much for those tickets. Yes. Turns out we bought them when people thought that game might still be important. And by the time we went, it was obvious that game was not important. We thought we were going to be smart. Yeah, that did not work out. So we need to solve this problem. We need the last game of an NFL season not to be meaningless for for any team. And I think we have a solution. Here is the solution that I propose. The last game of the year. Did you guys hear that? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it again. The last game of the year is counted for the following season's record. Now, I'm not proposing that it's counted as a full game, but I'm proposing it's counted as a half game. If you lose the last game of the year, your record before any games are played the following year is 0 and 1 half. Okay. What this will do is it will make that game important for the organization not to lose because if there is a tiebreaker situation the following year, they could lose the tiebreaker because they lost the last game. What do you guys think? Well, it would definitely make the red zone more interesting. The last red zone kind of show the season's more focused on the teams battling for a playoff spot. But it would be interesting to see the dynamic of the front office organizations wanting the coach to lose the game for draft purposes, but also they don't want to hurt their season too much next year. Uh, it would be interesting to see how that would play out. Well, I think what happens on the last game of the year is the players do not give up. They keep trying. And I think the coaching staff doesn't give up. They keep trying. It's the front offices that make the decisions. And they make this decision, you can't play starting players after a certain amount of time. And, of course, the reason they're making that decision is because they are focused on the playoffs. Many of these coaches are focused on winning a game, and the players are focused on winning a game 
because that's how they keep their jobs. Right. And also at the last game of the season, they're all trying to stat pad because they have a bunch of incentives that they want to get that their contract is full of, whether that's 10 touchdowns in a season or thousand yards uh, for a wide receiver in a single season. There's a bunch of different incentives that the players are trying to get. The front office does, I don't know how they communicate this to the coaches, but it definitely happened with Levy Smith last year where they, it's come out that they told him directly that he needed to throw that game for a, a draft pick. It's obviously not going to come out in an official statement because that'd be something that they would have to investigate. But apparently that was a part of the decision-making and getting Lovey Smith fired was because he was supposed to lose that game and he didn't, which costed them the number one overall pick. Go Bears. <laughs> I don't have very much to add to you all. I think that is, I think it is a good idea. Uh, I would be for it. What I think would be interesting is if you had a situation where, you know, whatever, I forget what year the the Patriots went undefeated. Could you imagine if you had an undefeated season and you threw the game the year before (laughs) and you actually had a half a loss and it was technically not considered an undefeated season? Well, I think you would still have an undefeated season. I I guess the only thing I'm saying is let's make this the tiebreaker for the following year so that it has some value. Here's a good question. Is the first round in the draft worth more than, than a tiebreaker the following year? And I don't know that answer. I, I think that it, it could make it more interesting on the teams that are on the bubble. Obviously if you have an undefeated season, you're not really worried about that half game and you're already going to get to playoffs, but if you have, you know, if you're vi- or if you're playing for that wild card spot and you have a half a loss from the season before, I mean, that could play a major role in whether you make the playoffs or not the following season or that that year, I should say. So there's the question: Is a half a game enough, or should it be a whole game? Should you go? Should you enter the following year zero and one or one and zero? You can maybe modify it, and so the first game of the season, you're down by a touchdown maybe, so it's not affecting your win total yet, but it puts you down a certain spread in the beginning of the game where if you lose the last game of the season, you're going to be down 3-0 or 7-0 in the first game. I, I think that's disrupting the game far more than what I'm suggesting. What I'm really suggesting is a half game. It becomes the tiebreaker for the following year. It seems like a great rule that will incentivize the front office to not throw games because they are thinking about the following year, not just this year. And it would make it would make football games more exciting. I don't think Tampa Bay would have pulled Tom Brady if if it meant the tiebreaker the following year, and we would have seen a better game as well as everyone else sitting in that stadium. Absolutely, because I. I believe they probably thought he was going to retire again. They're going to need any any help this season because they're going to be terrible. I'm just going to be honest. So, well, do we want to vote on this one, boys? I do. All righty. JJ, start us off. Well, you know how this is going to go. I think this is a great idea. Of course, it's my idea. I'm going to vote it a 10. Okay. 10 for JJ. David? I'm going to go 8. Eight? I like it. I, I think it it does. It, it'll make that last that 
18th week of the NFL season means a little more for teams that don't really have a lot to play for, and it has uh, repercussions for the next season. I will also give it an eight, frankly, just because the red zone would be more interesting, which is anything that's going to benefit red zone is a benefit for the fans. So I'll give it an eight. That makes it 8.7. We get to send this one off to the NFL competition committee. All righty. Perfect. Mr. Goodell will be sending this your way. We will take another brief break. And when we come back, we will dig into the email bag. Stay tuned. Parker, where'd you get this Mexican food? It's great. I picked it up at Dumbass Taco. Dumbass Taco, the original competition for Taco Bell. It was never clear why they didn't take off. Dumas Taco is a registered trademark of Dumas Foods International. Dumas Taco is properly pronounced Dumas Taco, not Dumbass Taco. All right. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for my favorite part of the show. We're going to dig into the email bag and see what our listeners have have got to say. Our first email is from Josh. He writes, Members, if you downsize the number of players per team by one person, which sports would be the most changed? Which sports would be the least impacted? Josh from Costa Rica. Well, not to state the obvious, but I would say tennis would be not the same. (laughs) Golf. With just the caddies, just getting yarded just for players and then moving on to the next hole. What do you guys think? I'm going to limit my discussion to team sports. Okay. I've got one. Most impacted would be beach volleyball. Interesting. <laughs> just playing by yourself? It would be very difficult. Yeah. How do you hit it to yourself? Anyway. Hmm. Least, least impacted would be football, I would think. Really? I think you're right. I think you could get rid of one player in football and not even tell the difference in the game. But you know the big, the sport that's got nine players that would be terribly impacted would be baseball. If you were going to pull somebody out of the field, what position would you get rid of? Catcher. You, <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> that, was, that was a joke, obviously. It would have to be the outfield. Then the outfield couldn't yeah. get covered. I mean, there would be so many base hits. That's right. Maybe third base and just have the shortstop play that whole left side. I have a I have a suggestion. I'm going to say hockey because if you play the entire game basically on the penalty penalty kill and have the other team on a power play, the percentage of an average N- or NHL team on the power play scores 25 to 30 percent of the time, and if they're playing, and that's just for two minutes. If they're playing the whole game down a man or up a man, that won't be fair at all. It's going to be 7-8-0 by the second period. I think you're missing the emailer's point. I think his point is both teams have to play down one person, not just one team. Yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. You're right. If you took football and one team had 11 and one had 10, that would be – Right. If the offense had 11, they would just obliterate. But if both teams had 10 – I don't think you tell much difference in football. I think baseball becomes 
a much higher scoring game if there's one less person in the field. I bet hockey, I bet hockey doesn't even feel different by just pulling one person out of both sides. Be quicker. It's way more fun with less players on the ice. That's for sure. What about basketball? Well, they do three on three basketball, and that's actually probably more fun to watch than five on five. So four on four wouldn't be. I mean, it'd be it'd be fun to watch, but I don't think it would really change, especially the NBA. I don't think it would really change anything. Most changed. Well, the only sport that I can think of that made a recent change was professional cycling. Tour de France took their teams from nine people to eight people, and they did it to save money, and you couldn't tell the difference. So it made no difference there. But that's an odd team sport. Obviously, the sports that only have two people are greatly impacted. Right. But if you think about right. – we'll just say you're thinking about the big four sports, football, baseball, basketball, and hockey. I think baseball is the most impacted by losing a player. Don't forget soccer. There's five. Most. That's what I was going to say the least impacted would be soccer, right? Maybe. I guess because I don't even know how many players are on the soccer field. It wouldn't change my viewing at all. <laughs> No, I, I do think baseball would be the most impacted. I mean, it has to be. I mean, it has to be the outfield. I say that. No, I'm pretty sure it would have to be. Okay. Well, thank you, Josh. Do we want to? I don't know. Just go through each of us, and or just leave it at that. Let's let's go through it. I'm going to say the the most impacted is baseball. The least impacted is hockey. Mm. David? I would say the most impacted is baseball. I think the least impacted would be the other four. I don't think it would really change your viewing experience. I don't think it would change the game. I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw y'all for a loop. I'm gonna say the most changed would be football. And I'm going to say the least impacted would be baseball. Well, we're not gonna let you say those without giving some reasoning. Well, I feel as though football, there's so many people on that field. And if they take a man, take two men off the field, it's going to open up a lot more of the field. The, all those coaches are offensive masterminds. They're going to come up with a way to use that open field to come up with more unique plays, more scoring plays. And in my opinion, that would change the game of football. Who do you think offensively they take off the field? Offensively, I would say probably a running back. Well, you know, offenses are built so differently now anyway. I mean, in the old days, you had a tight end, two two running backs, and two wide receivers. Is that right? Right. And if you know, if they use the running back to block on certain plays, they can just throw the tight end back there. And I mean, I don't know. And for least impacted baseball, my reasoning is I I think baseball players are the most athletic in all the sports. That's just my humble opinion. And I feel like they would be able to make it work, whether that's taking a person away in the outfield, they're fast enough to try to cover that ground. And if they were to lose a player in the infield, I would pick the third baseman and just have the shortstop who is – usually the most athletic person in the infield, they would be able to cover most of that ground. 
I mean, doesn't that mean a right-handed hitter can just hit it up the line every time? They could try. I mean, that's the whole reason why they have the shortstop, right? Is because if they only had three, if they only had a first baseman, second baseman, a third baseman, they'd literally because of how fast the ball is at so close to home plate that they literally can't cover that. Well, this needs to be this needs to be tried in the uh, minor leagues to see what happens. Plus, the minor leagues could there save some money by having one less player. I, you know, an, an equally interesting question. I don't really want to get into it, but an equally interesting question is: What if you add a player? Which sports are not impacted? Hmm. I think if you added a player in baseball, it would be so hard to get on base because everything would be covered. Football, I don't think it would make much of a difference. Basketball, it would get really crowded out there on the court. We'd have to go back to that rule where we we're going to make the court larger to make that work. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Josh. Our next email is from Pete. He writes, Mr. Parker, after listening to your discussion concerning the viability of golf as a sport, let me offer a golf-adjacent new sport that would definitely be a sport. Cross-country golf. Think biathlon, the sport that combines cross-country skiing and target shooting. In cross-country golf, the competitors would have to run 18 holes of golf carrying their own clubs. Their score would be some aggregate of their finish time and the number of shots they take. That would definitely be a sport. Pete from Italy. Thank you, Pete. It's fantastic. They actually kind of have a little niche sport that they do that where they see how fast you can play and they do, you know, a couple of clubs and it's literally sprint to the finish. But it, I don't think it it's not necessarily the time plus the strokes. It's literally how fast you can play 18. So I do think that would be fantastic. So is that is that sport you're referring to, David? Is it? just the way some people go play golf or is there actually a co- competitive sport of speed golf or whatever it's called? I don't think that they're doing that. Like the e- emailer is saying, I think that uh, this would be more of a, how fast you can do it and the lower strokes. And that is what your score is. I can say John Daly would not be participating in this whatsoever. I'm trying to imagine in my head thinking of tour players right now just running down the fairway as fast as they can, trying to figure out a club, quickly hitting it. Half the time they'll probably shank it, running into the woods, hitting it back out, getting on the green, putting it as fast as they can and trying to move on to the next hole. That would be hilarious to watch. I'd be all for that. Well, if you watch the biathlon, the real biathlon, these guys cross-country ski, but they stop and take their time to take the shots because they have to get their heart rate back down. So I think if you were doing this competitively, of course it depends on how it's scored, but if you're doing this competitively, you still need good golf shots because that's a lot less distance to run if you're running in the right direction the whole time. There's a couple things that I think are interesting about this. One is where in the world are you going to practice this? Because people <laughs> on golf courses are going to hate you. Uh, so yes. you have to find you have to find some golf courses that are nearly out of business in areas where there's a lot of super fit people, and then 
every Thursday morning till noon or something, they get to play this kind of golf. But so first of all, it would be hard to find a place for this sport to develop. But the second thing is, and David, well, David Parker, you're both golfers. If you had to carry your clubs and golf, how few clubs could you carry and still golf effectively? Obviously, a driver, maybe a couple mid irons, a wedge, and a putter. So maybe five or six. Yeah, that's that's what I would. And obviously, it depends on the length of the course. But I I probably wouldn't even take a driver. I would I would yeah. want something that I could hit and play most of the time that I knew where it was going in the distance that it was going. And you know, like you said, how it's scored is very you know important to this. So that I, mean, I would probably take a five iron, a seven iron, a wedge, and a putter. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be great if uh, the PIF gets this idea and forces oh, golfers Lord. to play this way <laughs> two times a year? <laughs> and if they don't get it at a certain time, they are sent to the gulag. <laughs> That's right. Bone saw. All righty. Thank you, Pete. Did you have something, JJ? I was going to say, let's vote on this as an alternate, an alternate okay. sport because I think it's, I think it's fun enough that uh, I would like to give it a good number. Well, I will start. I will give it a nine. I like the creativity. Frankly, I would just like to just see it happen on TV. I think a lot of people would tune in to watch that. Give me a nine. I'll go nine as well. Uh, Parker, maybe. Maybe you and I, my brother-in-law, can try this, and he can do some drone footage, and we can uh, put it out. And yeah, we can uh, we can go for the fastest round of golf Guinness World Record. That's right. Parker is a pretty good runner, David. Be careful. Oh, I'm, I'd be terrible. That's fine. I'm, I'm I'm I'd be banking on my golf game, depending <laughs> on how we decide how we score it. We can do best ball as long as we don't call as long as we don't call this golf and make everybody mad. I'm going to give it a ten. I think I think this would be so much fun once golf season's over for somebody like TNT or somebody to run a couple of these tournaments. It would be so much fun to watch. Well, I was going to say we'll send this to Jay Monahan, but I'm not sure who to send it to right now. <laughs> you pronounced you pronounced his name well last week. What uh, what is the Sheikh's name? Yasir Arumayan. There you go. There you go. Please don't kill me. Alrighty. Carol <laughs> from Muncie, Indiana. She writes, guys, I am thrilled your proposal for the SEC to play 10 SEC games, one rivalry game, and only one of what you refer to as a cupcake games failed. I am a Ball State graduate, class of 2009, and I looked up some numbers. Next year, we will receive $1.6 million for playing Georgia and $1.65 million for playing Kentucky. Our annual budget for the entire athletic department at Ball State is $27.3 million. Losing $3.25 million would be devastating for our athletic program. You boys need to think about all the people that you'll be impacting when you propose your rule changes. From Carol. Well, that's a good point. I was thinking only of sports fans and the SEC. And thinking, I guess I was initially thinking that the teams that get whipped in these cupcake games don't get anything out of it. But that, what mm. is that? That's 10% of their budget. 
that they would lose yeah. ten not ten percent of their football budget, ten percent of their entire athletic budget they would lose by not playing those two games. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Well, I mean, how else could they make that up? Play better. <laughs> Joining the SEC. <laughs> Well, I don't think that carried last week anyway, so there's no reason to revote it just because Ball State's going to have a problem. Well, Carol, you have a good point. We don't have much to say. We are sorry that we brought up a suggestion of possibly losing $3.2 million for your athletic department. So thank you for that. That is going to wrap up this week's show. You can use the links in the show notes to reach us. We need your help to make the Competition Committee a community. Please text a few of your friends a recommendation and a link to our show. It's easy. Click the three dots in the upper right corner of your phone. Select Share, Messages, type the name of three friends, and ask them to check out the show. That's all it takes. Thanks for joining us this week, and look for our new episodes each Thursday. Sorry, Chief. White man sitting on spring.